Uh, hey, we are continuing uh, in our series today called That You May Believe. It's a series taking us through the Gospel of John. And we've been holding in our minds throughout this series the great claims of the Christian faith, uh, the, the, the foundation stones, Christmas and Easter, that are claims upon history, not just religious or spiritual or philosophical claims. And so we've been highlighting that and also remembering uh, the purpose for which John wrote his gospel so that we might believe that Jesus is who he claimed to be and by believing have life in his name as he intended. That's, that's why he came. So we're holding that in mind. Last week, we looked at Jesus' promise to send the Holy Spirit to his followers and, and how that would be better for us even than him remaining with us physically in person. And today we look at the end of chapter 17 where Jesus prays for everyone who would believe in him in the future through the message of those first apostles. And when praying for all future believers, Jesus began by praying for our unity in him. So today we're thinking about Jesus' prayer for us and the implications of Christian unity for us and for our witness in the world. So before we read the scripture, let's pray together. Father, we turn now to the Bible and we know that we need your help in understanding. Um, we know that we need you to reveal yourself, to enliven us, to illumine the scripture to our minds. So we pray that you would do all of those things by the power and presence of your Holy Spirit with us and within us now. Uh, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. The scripture reading this morning is from the Gospel of John chapter 17, verses 20 through 26. Jesus prays, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. This is the word of the Lord. In John's Gospel, there's a, a noticeable shift between the end of chapter 16 and the beginning of chapter 17. Jesus moves from teaching his disciples to praying for them. Uh, so it's a move from information to intercession. And there's a, there's a big difference in the way it feels. Uh, how, how do you feel 
when someone prays aloud for you. I mean, think about that, really. It's much different than receiving teaching when someone is praying aloud for you. You know, what do you experience? How, how, how does it impact you? There could be a, revi- a variety of responses, right? I mean, you might uh, feel comforted or understood uh, that another person is taking up the concerns of your heart and offering them up to God on your behalf. Uh, sometimes you might feel vulnerable. You know, if you want to pray about the stuff that's really on your heart, you got to kind of open up and set it out there so that can feel risky. You might feel awkward but appreciative. You know, sometimes you just feel straight up thankful, like thank you that you care enough to pray for me. Uh, maybe, maybe you receive confidence and reassurance as another prays the prayers that you've been holding more silently in your heart. Or if you've been struggling, I, I know I've experienced this, um, maybe you gain courage as another person prays for you. And, and you sense that they're not kind of mired in the same struggle in which you feel stuck. So they, they come with kind of an unhindered confidence and they can pray with boldness to the Lord in your behalf. And even as they do, you feel your faith rising because they're praying more boldly. I mean, a, a lot happens when we pray for one another. Now imagine listening in as Jesus prays for you. The Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, pouring out his heart on your behalf. Because that's, that's what we've got here in this passage today. Jesus praying for all those that will believe in him in the future through the message of the apostles. Here's what he said. My prayer is not for them alone, meaning the, the disciples at that point. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. All those who will believe in the future through the great witness of the apostles. That all of them, everyone who will believe in the future, may be one Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I mean, think, think of all the things that Jesus might have prayed for, for every future follower that would come to trust him. I mean, think of all the challenges and all the, all the troubles. He could have prayed uh, for, for courage, for difficult times, strength to share the message entrusted to them, protection from uh, the persecution they would experience in the world, or a or hundred other practical things with which all future followers, including you and me, would struggle. But, but the one thing, the request nearest his heart that flowed from him to the Father on our behalf was that we as his followers would live in unity. See, the first thing Jesus prayed for us was unity. A, a very simple definition of education is this. Education is teaching that which deserves to be valued. When Jesus thought of all the people in the world who had turned to him in faith and called themselves Christians, the first thing he prayed for them was unity. That means Christian unity deserves to be valued. Highly, very highly. Because it was the first thing for which Jesus prayed. So why is it, you think, that 
Jesus prayed this first. I'm going to speculate on the first point, and the second point comes right from what Jesus said. Uh, First, human beings drift toward division, not unity. Right? Second, Jesus knew that the unity of the church would be critical to the accomplishment of the mission he was about to give us. I, I think these things certainly factored in to why he was praying for unity. So let's think about the drift to division first. There's a passage in the Bible, or actually earlier in John's Gospel in chapter 2, where Jesus expresses his unwillingness to entrust himself to people because he knew what was in their hearts. He knew that the fallen human heart left untended would drift toward division and violence. When we remodeled the front of our building here and kind of expanded our lobby, there were two little uh, stone engravings on the former um, kind of flower planting areas. We had two big things out in front of the church here. And we, we brought both of those stones and put them in our entryway. You can see them on the way out. One of them quotes Proverbs 29:18. Here's what it says. Where there is no vision, the people perish. Very interesting in the original Hebrew. That word perish literally means the people run amok. Meaning they turn on one another and start to do violence to each other. And that's what happens when there's no larger vision, no greater cause, no unifying purpose. Human beings will turn on one another in division and violence and start to shoot darts at each other, right? I mean, we see this reality in the world every day. We don't don't need to look far at all. And if you've been around the church for a bit, you've even seen it in the church. Even though it's not supposed to happen among us, like our, our brokenness and fallenness shines through sometimes, and this happens more often than we would like to admit. When church leaders are more concerned about the color of the coffee cups than the Great Commandment or the Great Commission. Uh, I still remember uh, my friend Dave Bast, who read the scripture this morning, asking me this, John, you know what the world's greatest problem is? Tribalism. And at that time, I had to, I had to think about it for a moment, but it's, it's really true. I mean, sociologists speak of things called boundary markers, and Boundary markers are the, uh, the social lines that groups draw to define who's in the group and who's out of the group. Uh, some, some of these are, you know, rather innocuous, though they might have a little bit of a sting. You know, the, uh, the whole, if you're not Dutch, you're not much. That's a funny version of that, but it has a, a little something. Uh, some are much more insidious like the whole white replacement theory thing that's in the news these days, which draws a dangerous boundary between white people and ethnic minorities, casting minorities as evil and dangerous and wanting to take over, largely the kind of thinking, apparently, that was uh, occupying the Buffalo Shooter's thinking. So boundary markers define all human beings as either us or them, right? You're either in our group or you're not. And if you are, you're us. If you're not, you're, you're them. And really, from a Christian perspective, right, from a biblical perspective, that does some dishonor to the reality that every single human being has been created in the image of God and is worthy of our honor and respect for that reason alone. Right? Not that we agree with everything that goes on, but there's a baseline truth there, right? Very recently, social psychologist Jonathan Haidt wrote an article titled, 
why the past 10 years of American life have been uniquely stupid. Basically, it's a long and, I believe, important article. Basically, it's about how social media has amplified our proclivity toward division. When Twitter released the retweet button and Facebook followed suit with the share feature, the social media companies began tracking posts or tweets that generated the most engagement as measured by the number of retweets or the number of shares. Algorithms were then developed to deliver to users posts that were most likely to trigger a sharing response with others. And to quote the article, later research showed that posts that trigger emotions, especially anger at outgroups, are the most likely to be shared. So literally, for the last decade, social media has been feeding us a steadily increasing diet of division. And it appears that's one of the major factors that has led us to where we are now as a country. And Jesus prayed for unity because he knows our human proclivity toward division. And remember, he was praying for us. He wasn't just saying, hey, you should do better. He was asking God the Father to help us, not just telling us we ought to be one. He knew we need supernatural help to live in unity. And the Holy Spirit helps us with that if, if we'll listen and be open to the ministry of the Spirit. So we're called to live against the tide of division in this world and to love one another the way Jesus loves us. Right? That's, what, that's the call to Christians. So Jesus prayed for unity, I think, because he knows our, our drift to division. He also prayed because he knew it would be critical, unity that is, to the accomplishment of the mission he was about to give us. Look, look at what he said. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. Right, the unity... Jesus prayed for us, had a purpose beyond our own experiencing of the blessing of living in unity because there is a tremendous blessing to living in unity under the leadership of the Lord. It, it, this is recorded in Psalm 133, right? How good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. It is like precious oil poured on the beard, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down on the collar of his robe. It is as if the dew of Hermon we're falling on Mount Zion. For there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life evermore. Unity is a blessing from the Lord. But beyond the blessing, uh, there's, there's a purpose. May they be in us so that, for the purpose that, the world may believe that you have sent me. You know, it's unity with a purpose. It's a unity for the world to advance God's great redemption plan in, in this world so that the whole world might believe that Jesus is exactly who he claimed to be, the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, the world might have life in his name. Remember, that's why John wrote his gospel, that we all might believe this stuff and have life in the name of Jesus. So in our community-starved, dangerously divided world, the most potent witness to the gospel will be the way brothers and sisters in Christ live in unity. And the world is watching to see if what we've got is the real deal or just another sham. And then Jesus went on to say, to pray, uh, that we might, quote, be brought to complete unity. Then, he said, people will know that God the Father sent Jesus because of his great love for people. So what, what does complete unity look like 
for Christians? Because that sounds pretty nebulous. Like, how do we do this? Sounds like no way. I mean, what kind of model do we have in our mind? First, what unity is not? Unity does not mean uniformity, right? The gospel does not call us to surrender our individuality so that we all look the same and sound the same. No, the Bible is very clear. Every tribe, nation, and tongue is invited to this party. Diversity is assumed. The assumption is that the gospel is much bigger than all human cultural differences. So no uniformity required here. Unity does not mean uniformity. Unity does not mean unanimity. We don't all have to agree on everything to live in unity. That kind of great uh, statement uh, that has guided much of the church, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, in all things, charity. That there are some essentials of the faith. There's no doubt about that. It's what makes a Christian a Christian, a follower of Jesus. But there are many matters of conscience or opinion, conscience or opinion, on which we don't need to be unanimous to live in unity. You know, unity does not mean unanimity. Unity does not mean unification. We don't have to do away with all the different Christian traditions and just have one big happy church to live in unity with other believers, right? Nor is ours a hunt for the lowest common theological denominator that somehow lets everybody feel included. That's not the thing either. I mean, Christians are to be united around the apostolic witness to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Or as John Stott calls it, the BBC, Basic Biblical Christianity. And, and that really points to what Christian unity is. It's a unity of faith and obedience. See, Jesus prays for our unity in faith. The early church gathered around the apostles' teaching. We're to do the same. You know, we have an eyewitness account of who Jesus was and what it is that he came to do. And the apostolic witness is the faith around which we're to be united. It's summarized well in the Apostles' Creed that we recited earlier today. Jesus prays for our unity in faith. Jesus prays for our unity in obedience. In his letter of 1 John, the Apostle John wrote this, this is love for God to keep his commands. Loving God means following Jesus, not just thinking well of him. We don't do this perfectly, and this is not a legalistic rule-based approach to following Christ. Rather, for the Christ follower, it's a keeping in step with the Holy Spirit. Right, following Jesus as directed by the Holy Spirit living with you and within you. That's what I understand Jesus to be saying in verse 22. He, he prayed this now. I've given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are one. So what, what is it exactly that Jesus gave us? He gave us the glory that the Father had given him. Now what's that all about? I mean, in the Bible, glory often refers to kind of making certain uh, the revelation of God's character or person, the manifestation of this, like being really clear on who God is and what God is like. So the glory that God gave to Jesus was, was seen in the reality that Jesus is the best revelation of God's character and person, the full revelation of God's character and person. Look at Colossians. The Son is the image of the invisible God. If you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. In Jesus, we see the person and character 
of God. So in that way, Jesus is the glory of God, the full revelation of his character and person. And Jesus gave us the Holy Spirit to continue that ministry of Jesus with us and within us. And that ministry of Jesus was a ministry of revealing the character and person of God the Father. So that's an ongoing thing within us. So the glory that Jesus gave us was the Holy Spirit. And it's only that ministry of the Spirit that will bring us to complete unity. I mean, the the kind of unity that is world-changing because it's so radically different than anything the world can know or create. This is a world-changing unity led by the Holy Spirit through the lives of Christ's followers. And that gets to what our unity is supposed to look like if led by the Spirit. Did you catch that? I have given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are one. Wow. I mean, by the leadership of the Holy Spirit, the unity of believers will begin to look like the unity of the Trinity. Now, this is like, kind of blow your mind stuff. and like, what, what does this actually mean for us? Think of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Three persons, one essence. Three people, one divine nature. The three exist in personal relationship, none subordinate to any of the others. Each fully God, a trinity of persons, but a unity of essence. Distinct persons, full unity. With no contradiction between those two things. Distinct persons, full unity. So think about that as applied to us, the church, the Christ followers. Distinct persons, full unity. And this is the kind of life that's possible in Christ as guided by the Holy Spirit. And it's exactly that for which Jesus is praying. Life as distinct individuals living in full unity with other Christians. In a sermon... Charles Spurgeon put it this way. Are you alive by the life of Christ? Does God dwell in you and you in him? Then, my dear friend, give me your hand. Never mind a thousand differences. If you are in Christ and I am in Christ, we cannot be two. We must be one. So what's our part in all this? Are we all going to go home and try harder? I mean, certainly we need to value what Jesus valued. And unity is right up there at the top. Certainly working hard toward Christian unity. Unity in our own church here. Christian unity in the larger world is a noble cause. But if that's our plan A, we are in deep trouble. Because that's not how you get to unity. By working harder. We grow in unity by listening to the Holy Spirit and obeying that's the path to unity. So if you, if you haven't caught on to this quite yet, as a church, I, we as leaders are trying really hard to keep in front of you three very important questions. How is God getting your attention? What is God saying to you? And what are you going to do about it? This, this is one of the most basic uh, rhythms of the Christian life. It's really the cadence of faith. Revelation and response. That basic cadence is baked into our worship service every week. We approach God. You know, we hear 
the word of God, and we respond to God. Revelation and response. The Holy Spirit, God in person, living with us and within us, is still speaking right now, today, revealing who God is, what God's like, and what God would like of us. And our question is, are we listening? And are we responding? Our role is to seek the Lord and to stop resisting the work of the Spirit in us. I mean, God's renewing the world. God's working out unity in us by the Holy Spirit living with us and within us. And that unity will be world-changing. The world is in desperate need. So as the Apostle Paul instructs us, go on being filled with the Spirit. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Pray with me, would you? God, help us by your Spirit to grow in you. Help us hear what you're saying to us. Tune our hearts and minds and spirits to the, way, the ways you're, you're trying to get our attention and, and help us to receive the good news that you're speaking to us. We know that your voice is never one of condemnation. You'll, you'll bring conviction to us, certainly. But you will never condemn us for you came to set us free. So God, help us learn, help us grow to tune out all of the noise and to listen for your voice to listen to your voice and speak, Lord. Your servants are listening. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.